Good morning. Let's pray. Father, we come to this moment very eager to open your word and to consider this amazing mystery that we have sung about. And we're grateful, Father, that you have taught us about it in so many places and in so many ways in the word. And certainly that is the case in the passage before us this morning. And we ask, Lord, that as we do so, that you would grant us to feel the weight, the glory of the things that we encounter in the text, that we would believe what we see, that we would embrace it, that your Holy Spirit would have his way with us, and that we would live in light of the truth, Lord. We need your help in these things. So we ask for it with great confidence in the name of our crucified and risen Savior, Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 4. Leviticus chapter 4. Thus far, Leviticus has focused our attention on the central reality of human existence, which is that we were created to abide with God. And the first three sacrifices that we've looked at, what we've called the sacrifices of abiding, those have depicted for us the blessedness of fellowship with God. And now, as we come to chapter 4, we enter a new section, and that section puts in front of us the central question of human history, which is, how can I, a sinner, enter the presence of a holy God? Every person is conceived separated from God in sin. And in order for that to be remedied, we must grasp two things. We must first grasp the seriousness of sin even seemingly inconsequential sins have devastating results. And the offering that we look at this morning, the sin offering, that offering is going to put in front of us the seriousness of sin. The second thing that we must grasp is that forgiveness is possible, but it is very costly. And the sin offering puts that truth in front of us as well. This is a very pertinent passage of Scripture for us. Even even we who are believers reconciled to God. It's pertinent for us in that we, New Testament believers, we tend to minimize sin in some cases. In other cases, we tend to maximize sin inappropriately. That is, we tend to consider our own or others' sin unforgivable. And so the sin offering reminds us of the truth. By the sin offering, the offerer was saying to God, I have sinned and I trust you for forgiveness through 
the costly and cleansing atonement of shed blood. Now, we're going to handle this offering a bit differently than we have the others. There are a couple of reasons for that. First, there's so much ground to cover that we have to. But more importantly, the text itself indicates that this offering is different than the ones that preceded it. As, As we read the text in a moment, I want you to notice how this offering is different from the previous three. The previous offerings gave different instructions depending on what was being offered. But in chapter 4 and chapter 5, instructions are divided according to who is bringing the offering. So as, as we read in a moment, I want you to look for four different groups of sinners, particularly in chapter 4, and notice the similarities and differences in their instructions. Some, different still, some differences still are going to come in chapter 5. So stand with me if you would. And look for some of these differences and, and similarities. We're going to read 4.1 through 5.13. 4.1 through 5.13. Leviticus chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that, has, that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering, he shall remove from it the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys, just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. But the skin of the bull and all its flesh with its head, its legs, its entrails and its dung, all the rest of the bull, he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place to the ash heap and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap, it shall be burned up. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, And they do any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done. And they realize their guilt. When the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd with a sin offering for a sin offering and bring it in front of the tent of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord and the bull shall be killed before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall bring some of the blood of the bull into the tent of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar that is in the tent of meeting before the Lord, and the rest of the blood shall be poured out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. 
and all its fat he shall take from it and burn on the altar. Thus he shall do with the bull. As he did with the bull of the sin offering, so he shall do with this. And the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. And he shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it up as he burned the first bull. It is the, it is the sin offering for the assembly. When a leader sins, doing unintentionally any one of all the things that by the commandments of the Lord his God ought not to be done and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has, been, he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring as his offering a goat, a male without blemish, and shall lay his hand on the head of the goat and kill it in the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out the rest of its blood at the base of the altar of the burnt offering. And all its fat he shall burn on the altar like the fat of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. So the priest shall make atonement for his sin and he shall be forgiven. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not be done, and he realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish, for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat is removed from the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. If he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish and lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it for a sin offering in the place where they kill the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood as a, uh, blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on top of the Lord's food offerings. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed. And he shall be forgiven. If anyone sins and that he hears a public adjuration to testify. And though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Or if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal or a carcass of unclean livestock or a carcass of unclean swarming things, and it is hidden from him and he has become unclean and he realizes his guilt. Or if he touches human uncleanness, of whatever sort the uncleanness may be with which one becomes unclean, and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt. Or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good. Any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these. When he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. But if he cannot afford a lamb... Then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. He shall bring them to the priest 
who shall offer first the one for the sin offering. He shall wring its head from its neck, but shall not sever it completely. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar, while the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. Then he shall offer for the second, for a burnt offering, according to the rule. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. But if he cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then he shall bring us his offering for the sin that he has committed, a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall put no oil on it, and shall put no frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. And he shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take a handful of it as its memorial portion, and burn this on the altar. On the Lord's food offerings, it is a sin offering. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed in any one of these things, and he shall be forgiven. And the remainder shall be for the priests as in the grain offering. You may be seated. This whole section exposes the problem of sin. If you want to enjoy Abiding with God, which is depicted in the first three offerings, something has to be done about sin. And it can be done, but it is costly. And so the first truth that is exposed by this section is that sin defiles and endangers. Sin defiles and endangers. Section shows that sin defiles. In each of these subsections, we saw several of them. In each one of them, no matter who sinned, there is a comment made about resulting guilt. Whether it's the high priest or the common individual, sin defiles. It brings a stain of guilt. And this section also shows, interestingly, that the extent of defilement depends upon Not just the sin or the nature of the sin, but upon the one who committed that sin. The extent of defilement, I'll say that again, the extent of defilement depends not just on the nature of the sin, but upon the one who committed it. We are fond of saying, sin is sin. And that is true. All sin brings guilt. But not all sin is the same. Some sin is simply more destructive It is more defiling, has greater consequences, and the severity can be due to either the nature of that sin itself or it can be due to who did it. And we can tell this by paying attention to the differences in the instructions here. First of all, we find the high priest, then there's the whole congregation, then we move on to a non-priest leader, and then there's a common individual. And the seriousness of defilement is graduated down with each one of those categories. And you can tell by the costliness of the offering required and what is done with the blood and other parts of the animal that there is a graduating down of the seriousness of defilement in each one of these cases. So so relatively quickly, let's walk through each of these and look at these things. So first of all, we've got the high priest. For the high priest, the offering has to be a bull, which is the most costly offering that can be brought. And the blood, where does it have to be applied? It has to be applied inside the sanctuary, on the veil and the altar of incense. We haven't seen this before. In other words, blood is applied very close to the presence of God. 
the fat and the entrails, they're offered up in smoke. And the rest of the animal, all the rest of the animal, the skin, the head, everything else is taken outside the camp and it is all burned in a clean place. One other thing to note about the priest's sin, and it's it's unique. This is the only scenario in in the whole section where someone's sin brings guilt upon others. The priest is a representative of all the people before God. This is very similar to Adam in the garden. When Adam sinned, all people became guilty because Adam was the representative head of the human race. The high priest represents all the people of Israel before God. So when he sins, they bear guilt with him. So again, this is the most defiling sin that can be committed among the people of God in the sense that one man's sin, just one man's sin, is going to to taint the whole congregation. And it's not the heinousness of the sin itself that's so defiling. The text indicates this is an unintentional sin. He forgot to do something that he should have. Or in a moment of human weakness, he had a lapse of judgment. This is not outright rebellion. And yet, it taints the whole congregation and it requires cleansing inside the sanctuary. In this case... The severity of defilement comes from who committed the sin. Now, before we proceed, I want to I pause and just note that there are indications of this principle in spheres outside the nation of Israel. There, there is a higher measure of accountability for those in leadership positions in the various spheres of human relationships as far as God is concerned, even outside the, the, the realm of, of the nation of Israel. We can move over into the New Testament. We find, we find this in marriage. We find it first in the Old Testament. For example, in the very beginning of the Bible, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, they both sinned. And remember, it wasn't just that they both sinned, but Eve sinned first. But when God comes looking for an account, His question is, where are you? Masculine singular. He said, where are you, man? Where are you, Adam? He's looking for the man. He looks for accountability from Adam for both of their, their infractions of the law that he gave them. We can find this in child rearing. We move over, move over into the New Testament. Who does the New Testament hold ultimately responsible for the godly raising of children? Is it mothers? It is not. Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We find this same principle of greater accountability for those in a position of leadership within the church. James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Hebrews 13.17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no benefit to you. Elders, they're going to have to give an account for what? Not just their own souls. They're going to give an account for your soul. Greater accountability for those who are in a position of leadership. Those in leadership... There is a greater accountability and therefore their their failure 
is going to have a greater effect on those who who are under their leadership. Think think of this just in terms of just practically what would happen in this congregation. If if someone in the congregation, just just a regular church member, committed a sin, let, let, let's say let's say a regular person in our congregation committed a serious sexual sin. That that could be dealt with very discreetly, depending on the repentance of the person. And it, it may be the case that, that if, if that person was repentant, it could be that, that almost nobody knows about that. It could be that almost no one knows about that. Some people close to them come around that person and help them, help them to, to follow the Lord more closely. Not the case if it's one of the elders. If one of the elders commits that same sin, it's going to rock the church. Fathers, There is no New Testament reason to say that your sin brings guilt upon your family, but there is reason to say that your sin is more devastating to the family than the sin of anyone else in your family. When you fail to lead, when when you take spiritual matters with a grain of salt, when you're lax in pursuing Christ, when you turn a blind eye to your own or another's sin within your household, your, your wife and children, they carry that like a burden. We find this idea throughout Scripture that there's a greater accountability for those who are in a position of leadership. As we move on in the text, we, we find that we have instructions for a sin committed by the whole congregation. This is in verses 13 through 21. Now, how can a whole congregation sin unintentionally? Well, one commentator suggests that a situation like the treaty with the Gibeonites in Judges 9 might qualify. If you're not familiar with that story, you might just write that down, Judges chapter 9, and read about that story. It's a situation where the people were deceived into doing something that was forbidden. That might qualify here. At any rate, the process for dealing with that sin is virtually identical to the process for dealing with the sin of the high priest. And that demonstrates how serious both of them are. When the people sin corporately, it's as serious as if the high priest has sinned. And when the the high priest sins, it is as serious as if the entire congregation has sinned. And this perhaps exposes the danger of what we might call bandwagon sins, where our standard for conduct of what is acceptable is, is what everyone else is doing as opposed to what God says is acceptable. You can end up with with an entire people tainted by sin such that the sanctuary itself needs to be cleansed. Now, there is is also a New Testament parallel here in my view. The New Testament does give us a way to address sin in the life of an individual. We find that in Matthew chapter 18, verses 16 through 18. I'm sorry, 15 through 18. Matthew 18, 15 through 18. But... 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 gives an example of large-scale sin in a church. And the sin is something that we might think is not that big of a deal. Laziness. But Paul says, look, if, if, if this sin doesn't, doesn't get nipped in the bud right now in that church, get rid of these people. In other words, forget Matthew 18 on a large-scale sin, when you've got congregational sin going on, it's got to stop now. There's no three-step thing. You address it immediately, and if it doesn't stop, 
excommunication is the next step because that is a very serious sin. It is extremely defiling for there to be large-scale sin among a people. So what we're seeing here in Leviticus chapter 4 is that a factor in the severity of defilement is not just the nature of the sin itself, but who did it, either the stature of the person or the pervasiveness of its commission. We move on in the passage. We see, thirdly, instructions for the sin of a leader. So this is a, this is a non-priest leader, and that comes in verses 22 through 26. And there it's not a bull that's required, but a male goat, a male goat without blemish. And here the blood is not applied inside the sanctuary, but it's applied to the horns of the bull of the altar of burnt offering, which is outside the sanctuary. The fat and the entrails, they're offered up in smoke. And we find in chapter 6 that the animal skin and its meat, all of the, all of the stuff that's left over, goes to the priests. So this animal can be consumed. And all of these things indicate that there, there, there has been defilement, but it's less severe than the previous, the previous cases. Fourth set of instructions pertain to the common individual. And so here the offering is not a bull, not a male goat, but a female goat or lamb. So here the offering is, is less costly still. Now, we, we, we don't want to read too much into this and say, well, this is not a big deal at all. An animal still has to die. This sin is still bringing guilt The text is just saying that there are graduated levels of the seriousness of the defilement. In chapter 5, we find then a series of situations of inadvertent sin in which it appears that there has been a lapse of memory. There's something that a person was supposed to do, they forgot, and, and that's how serious all of this is. We likely wouldn't even consider some of these things to be sins. Leviticus 5 does. And, and, and it defiles to the point that an animal has to die. The section is indicating that, that sin defiles, and not only does it defile, but by defiling, it endangers. Sin endangers. There's, there, this is much more obvious as, as we'll move further into Leviticus. But for the defiled person to enter God's presence means instant death. That's why defilement is dangerous. For the unholy to come, to come into contact with the holy is deadly. So if we think back to Genesis chapter 3, really, for God to send Adam and Eve out of the garden, that was actually a measure of mercy. God, God is protecting them. God's being gracious to them. He's saving their lives. We, we tend to think of that as, as this is strictly punishment. Get away from me. I'm punishing you by putting you... He's saving their lives because for them to be in His presence is deadly for them. And the same is true of the tabernacle. All of these, all of these walls, these, these, these things put between man and God, these are measures of mercy to protect them from instant death. We're going to see numerous instructions later in Leviticus given for the, pers- the purpose of maintaining a person's purity, quote, lest you die. For the unholy to come into contact with the holy is deadly. 
Sin defiles, and by defiling, it endangers. And so, the instructions for the sin offering, they show us that, that sin defiles and endangers. This text is also showing us that sin requires cleansing and atonement. Sin requires cleansing and atonement. When we look at where this offering is used elsewhere in the book of Leviticus and even elsewhere outside of the book of Leviticus, and, and by the way, you can do this by getting on any, any Bible software or, or even Bible gateway and pulling up Leviticus and just searching the phrase sin offering. When, when you do that, you'll find that this offering is closely associated with cleansing. This offering is made in order to cleanse. It, it makes a person clean before God. And it, it cleanses the tabernacle itself. It cleanses people so that they don't defile the tabernacle. And that's what we're seeing in chapter 4 with the sprinkling of the blood on the veil and the application of the blood to the horns of the altar of incense and the application of the blood to the horns of the altar of burnt offering. While sin has defiled, the sin offering, and in particular the blood of the sin offering, cleanses. It's cleansing everything that has been defiled. That's what's depicted anyway. Atonement also is being made. Atonement is being made. As the animal is slaughtered, its blood applied, and its fat and entrails offered up in smoke. Seven times we read in this section that we read a moment ago, we read these words, and the priest shall make atonement. And the priest shall make atonement. And that's what's happening as the animal is being slaughtered, the blood is being applied, and the fat is being offered up in smoke as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. To make atonement simply means to satisfy wrath. And so as that smoke is, is, is wafting up to God as a pleasing aroma, what it signifies is that this person is once again pleasing to the Lord. That's what it pictures. So the way of approach has been opened so that abiding can be enjoyed once again. Abiding, all of that stuff that's depicted in the first three offerings. The sin offering makes possible. And we know that because with each mention of atonement, all of these seven mentions of atonement in the text, we find these words following. And he shall be forgiven. And he shall be forgiven. Atonement enables forgiveness. The sin is forgiven and fellowship is restored. Once again, it's costly. It is very costly. If we don't read this carefully, we may be tempted as just common individuals. You know, none of us are high priests or not all of us are leaders. Some of us as common individuals may may be tempted then to minimize sin. To think the really defiling sins, those are the ones committed by the leaders or the whole congregation and we've seen some parallels to those concepts in the New Testament. And so we may think, well, my, my individual sin, it's not that big a deal. Well, this would be a good time to talk about the nature of the sins addressed in this section. I'm guessing, and I could be wrong, but I'm guessing that, that not many of us have endured any dark nights of the soul over unintentional sins. Is that true? Likely not many of us have struggled with a past defined by accidental breaches of God's Word. 
probably few of us wear as part of our identity a load of guilt resulting from inadvertent iniquity. And that's because we have trafficked in much larger game, right? We've rebelled with our eyes wide open. If we're honest, our worst days of sin have had nothing to do with human weakness or lapses in judgment or forgetfulness or bad decisions made on a lack of sleep. No, we, we knew exactly what God required of us, and with sharp mental and emotional faculties and fists raised to the sky, we have said to God, go take a hike, God. These things that you tell me not to do are precisely the things I want to do, what I'm going to do, and you can watch me. And the Old Testament calls those sins high-handed sins. And, and perhaps we regret them now, but we've piled them to the sky. Now, this chapter doesn't deal with those. And th- th- think about, again, let's put ourselves in the position of a person offering one of these offerings. Remember that the offerer is the one slaughtering this animal. You know what it's like to slit the throat of a goat and, and see its, its lifeblood pouring out like a faucet? That's what the law requires for a sin of forgetfulness. What on earth is going to be required to atone for something that, that truly wrecks the conscience? What about that? Where's the sin offering for those things? What's going to cleanse me from that mountain of rebellion? You can offer ten bulls for something like that? Or maybe it's a thousand sheep for for that high-handed sin. What are you going to do? Now, I will say that in the next section on guilt offerings, there there may be a sliver of a category for for intentional sin. It's, It's a bit ambiguous And I'll know more, Lord willing, before next week. But I can tell you this definitively. The sins that we tend to think of as serious sins, and some not so serious sins, the law offered no remedy for them. The law offered no sacrifice. Just think think through some of the Ten ten Commandments with me. Just a few of them. Idolatry, worshiping false gods. That gets you the death penalty under the law of Moses. No forgiveness. That's Deuteronomy 17.17. 17. If, if you want to take notes on some of these things, I'm going to give you some, I'm going to give you some, some references for each of these. I'm sorry, not De- Deuteronomy 17.17. 17. It's Deuteronomy 17.1-7. through 7. Deuteronomy 17.1-7. You get the death penalty for idolatry. Taking the Lord's name in vain? Death penalty. No forgiveness. Leviticus 24.10-16. Leviticus 24, 10-16. Violating the Sabbath. Death penalty, no forgiveness. Numbers 15, 32-36. Numbers 15, 32-36. Hey, listen to this one, young people. Dishonoring your parents. Dishonoring your parents. Death penalty, no forgiveness. Deuteronomy 21, 18-21. Deuteronomy 21, 18-21. Adultery. Death penalty, no forgiveness, Deuteronomy 22.22. Deuteronomy 22.22. There is no atonement for these things under the law of Moses. 
You can, you can slaughter bull after bull after bull. It will do nothing. And, and we tend to think, well, murder, yeah, that, that should get the death penalty. That makes sense. And that's, that's true. But God has a far more highly refined sense of His own holiness and of the offensiveness of sin. So violating the Sabbath, taking His name in vain, dishonoring your parents, we sneeze at these things. In the law of Moses, you do not pass go. You do not collect $200. You go straight to the pit for those things. There is no forgiveness. So, the sin offering does a lot for us. It simultaneously shows the sinfulness of sin, that sin defiles and endangers, that it requires cleansing and atonement. It shows, it shows that forgiveness is possible for some things, but it leaves us wanting, does it not? It's, it says, sin is, uh, forgiveness is possible for inadvertent sins. None of us are losing sleep over inadvertent sins. We've got a heap of advertent sins. We've majored in the on-purpose kind of infractions of God's holiness. So what about that? What on earth? What on earth can you sacrifice to cover that kind of sin? That brings us to this glorious truth. Christ is the all-sufficient cleansing atonement for sinners. Christ is the all-sufficient cleansing atonement for sinners. Listen, you could sacrifice every bull on the planet, sacrifice every sheep, every goat on the planet. You could even sacrifice another man. Proverbs tells us that a man cannot redeem, the life of one man cannot redeem another man. You can't even sacrifice another person and cover your sins. It has to be the God-man. It has to be this one. It's the only only way. God is so holy and sin so defiling that Christ alone could atone for sin and cleanse us. And God is so full of mercy and grace and Christ so submissive to His Father and so loves His brothers and sisters that He agreed to that plan. Hebrews chapter 7 was read for us this morning, making the point that Jesus is the high priest we needed, bringing the offering that we needed. Jesus is the high priest that we needed, bringing the offering that we needed. Because He was sinless, because He was sinless, He did not need to offer a sacrifice for Himself. He never sinned. And because He never sinned, He could offer Himself as that blameless sacrifice. He is the better sacrifice that we needed. Christ was crucified on the cross. Not not an animal, but a man. The perfect man. The God-man. He was crucified and raised from the dead, accomplishing things that no animal sacrifice ever could like the following. I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you three things. The first of those is this. Permanent satisfaction of wrath. Permanent satisfaction of wrath. Hebrews 2.9 reads this way. But we see Him, it's talking about Jesus, but we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, 
so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In other words, Jesus descended from heaven and took on human flesh so that he might die in our place. The punishment that we deserved, he took. And according to Romans 5.9, God's wrath therefore has been satisfied. Romans 5.9 reads this way. Since therefore we have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Wrath permanently satisfied in the, in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The second thing that Jesus' sacrifice did that no animal sacrifice could is true cleansing from guilt. True cleansing from guilt. If you're taking notes, you might write down Hebrews 10, 11 through 18. That passage begins this way. And every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. I'm going to stop right there. These priests of the old covenant, they they offered sacrifices which could never take away sins. And and what that means is, the the, the author of Hebrews is is saying to us that these offerings of Leviticus that that we're studying right now, They weren't actually cleansing the sinner. They were picturing something, but not actually accomplishing those things. Those sacrifices, the sin offering that we've just looked at in Leviticus 4 and 5, they couldn't take away sin. That is, that they they couldn't cleanse from sin. So, So we are right to ask, how then did God forgive those people back then? How did God forgive them? Write down Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and following. Romans 3, 25 and following. That passage indicates that God passed over those former sins because He was looking forward to the sacrifice of Christ. See, God has, sacri- God has forgiven all sins of all time, going all the way back to Adam and Eve based upon the sacrifice of Jesus, not on the basis of a single animal sacrifice. Those animal sacrifices were pictures of the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now continuing in Hebrews 10, 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never, set, never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now I'm skipping down to verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now the, the, the author of Hebrews is telling us many things, two great things right here. First of all, Jesus' one sac- sacrifice perfected sinners. That means made them completely clean. And because He's made them clean and forgiven them, there is no longer a sacrifice for sin. That means there is never going to be another time when another sacrifice needs to be offered ever again. He has perfected the sinner, perfectly cleansed them such that no further sacrifice is needed. So, Jesus has accomplished these things that no animal sacrifice could ever do. He is, he's given permanent sacri- satisfaction of wrath, true cleansing from sin, and blessedly, this as well, His sacrifice covers all sin. Not just the lapses in memory, 
Not the inadvertent ones, but all of them. 1 John 1.9 reads this way. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All of it. Now, some of us really struggling with a guilty conscience. For some of us, we may have in the back of our minds, yeah, but, yeah, but. Well, let's, let's, let's deal in a little bit more specificity, okay? Why don't you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6. And we will look at a passage that, that deals in some sin that we just saw the Old Testament offered no sacrifice for. The New Testament says, well, it's a different day now. This is 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now consider that most of those are not only what we would call serious, egregious sins, but they are from those same categories that were not forgivable under the law. They carried the death penalty. No forgiveness! Sexual immorality, adultery, homosexuality, idolatry. Under Moses, you just get stoned for those things. What about under the new covenant in Christ's blood? Paul continues, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is a new and better covenant with a better priest offering a better sacrifice that covers all sin, all of it. Do you know what this means? This is what Paul says this means. This is Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is, for those who have repented, who've turned from their sin and trusted in Christ, there is no guilty verdict waiting for them on the day of judgment. The wrath for all their sin has been satisfied and they have been cleansed of guilt by the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So, what should we do with these truths. I would say that the first and most obvious thing is to say, let's trust in Christ. Let's trust in Christ. If you are hearing today, perhaps for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, about this reality that sin separates us from God, 
And yet you are one who have never turned from your sin and said, I'm going to trust in Jesus to save me from that wrath that I so justly deserve. I'm going to trust in His righteousness, His death, His resurrection to reconcile me to God. If you've never done that, do that today. Recognize there's no other sacrifice. And recognize that His sacrifice is sufficient. You trust in Him. There's no no other sacrifice that will ever be needed. There's no other one that you could offer. It would make you right with God. Turn away from all your nonsense, all, the way, all of your sin, all other attempts to make God happy. It's all nonsense. Turn to Jesus. Say that Jesus is my only plea before God on the day of judgment. Do that today. Trust in Him. For the rest of us, those of us who have turned from our sins, let us trust in Jesus. Let us not attempt to continually cleanse ourselves or atone for ourselves. You know how we typically do this? We typically do this through wrongly motivated good works. We have to be really careful about this. We have to think clearly about this because the New Testament does call for godly living. That godly living is intended to be a grateful and loving response to forgiveness not a meritorious purchase of forgiveness. So we have to keep that right in our, in our thinking. So let us trust Jesus, not our good works. Let's believe what the Bible says. Christ alone could cleanse us and atone for us. Our works could do nothing to that end. And then, in full assurance of faith, let's follow Him in joyful obedience. Secondly, let's not commit the sin of minimizing sin. Let's not commit the sin of minimizing sin. Let's not make the mistake of thinking that anything that doesn't rise to the level of of murder, adultery, or some kind of trafficking isn't that big of a deal, and we can therefore make room for it in our lives. what, What issue does Paul deal with in Romans immediately after exposing the glorious sufficiency of the grace of God in Christ? He deals with the glorious sufficiency of, of the grace of God in Christ in Romans 5. The question he asks right after that comes in Romans chapter 1. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? In other words, should we demonstrate the abundance of grace by indulging in sin? Here's the answer that he gives. This is Romans 6, 2-4. By no means. For how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Those who have been raised from the dead with Christ, we are to walk in a completely different way than we did before we came to Christ. Leviticus has shown us That even inadvertent, accidental things required cleansing and atonement. Christ died for those things too. And so, just consider this morning, is there a a smaller sin, what we might call a smaller sin, that you've allowed to hang around, tolerating it because it's, quote, no big deal. Turn from that and honor Him with your grateful obedience. Third, finally, 
Let's not commit the sin of inappropriately maximizing sin. Let's not commit the sin of inappropriately maximizing sin. We do that in a couple of ways. First of all, by considering our our sin unforgivable. We inappropriately maximize sin by considering our sin unforgivable. Let's not walk in functional unbelief by living as if sin for which Christ atoned and guilt which He cleansed us from is still alive and well and separating us from God. When the Father raised Christ from the dead, He was signifying, my Son has won, sin and death is defeated. Listen, you and I have no standing to offer a contradictory legal opinion. When the judge has spoken, that's it. And it it minimizes Christ to believe otherwise as if His sacrifice was insufficient or as if your sin was too egregious for Him to cover. There's no no reason to to deny that that your sin was egregious, but there is no way biblically to deny that, that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a matter of belief. And if you've repented and trusted in Christ, then move forward and enjoy your purity before God and rejoice. Don't also commit the sin of maximizing sin by considering the sin of others unforgivable. Don't consider the sin of others unforgivable. When we've been forgiven but we refuse to forgive others. We minimize Christ in a couple of ways. First of all, we assume pridefully that He was capable of covering other sin, but of covering our sin, but not capable of covering that other person's sin. And we also imply that a sin against us is more offensive than a sin against Him. The whole thing, of course, is, is just dreadful, unbecoming of one who would call themselves Christian. Now, as we close here, what, what would the Lord have you to do in response to these things? That's what we'll consider as we enjoy a moment of silent reflection after I pray. I'm going to pray and then we will we'll consider these things together. What would the Lord have you to do with the truths that we've seen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace to us in demonstrating over and over throughout the Scriptures how dangerous sin is because of its defiling nature. We thank You, Father, that You have taken steps to save us from death, initially by separating us from You, to save us from Your your deadly holiness and then taking steps to save us by imparting Christ's life to us through His death death and resurrection. We're just so thankful for these things, and we pray, Lord, that You would help us to think rightly about them and to live in light of them. We pray also, Lord, for those among us who perhaps are still separated from You in sin and maybe in some ways have been either denying seriousness of sin, or denying your ability to forgive their sin. 
In either of those cases, Lord, we pray that you would impress upon them the truth that without your forgiveness, they're doomed and that Christ's sacrifice is completely sufficient to reconcile them to you. Please move them, Father, to turn from their sin and trust in Christ today. We ask all this in Jesus' name.